Hi folks, just a few notes before the podcast. In this podcast, we have some interesting things happen that I figured I'd give you a heads up about. We tiptoe around what some of the next episodes will be about, and there's a little bit of feedback that I was unaware of during the recording of this, so I do apologize. Also, we have a mascot, Cece, that you will hear a little bit in the background there. She made the episode really fun and hilarious. Otherwise, I really hope you folks enjoy. Stay cool out there during this sweltering summer. Look forward to hearing more stories from all of you. Please get a hold of me on the email at the bottom of the episode or get a hold of me through any of the Facebook and Instagram outlets. Again, thanks for listening and take care of each other out there. Hi, this is Johnny. I'm your host, and you are listening to Music Seeds. The music that made us. All right, folks, here we go. This is Johnny here. Today we have Reese and uh, JT Money back again. I always look forward to these conversations, I really do, to be honest. One of the things that I was interested in talking about was guitarists, and then JT had a great suggestion that could tie into something that I wanted to talk about anyway, because we talked about this a few months back, was the 30th anniversary of 10. There, it's already getting a lot of attention, I've noticed. There's, it's on a cover of a magazine this month. I think it might be Guitarist Magazine. There was a Funko Pop thing that was dropped this yeah. week that sold out like that. Oh, yeah. And I could have got it, but I was like, ah, it wasn't a big deal to me. My friend Gretchen Carter got it, who's also, I think, you, yeah. you met actually when we went to the uh, record store day. Mm-hmm. So she got one. She actually uh, texted me and let me know that, hey, it was coming out. 30 years ago, that album coming out, and then... Uh, what JT brought up was that there was a shitload of albums yeah. that came out that year. And I, and I knew there was a few really big, strong albums, but then when he sent that list, I was like, holy crap, you're right, man. It was, mm-hmm. um, and I want to kind of know, I mean, you weren't even born yet. Nope. <laughs> and you were how old? Uh, I was 10 in 1991. Yeah. So I don't, do you remember any of that? A little bit on the radio. I mean, some of the more popular songs, kind of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers doing like Under the Bridge and mm-hmm. obviously then a little bit later was like Smells Like Teen Spirit some of the stuff like that was kind of big. Yeah. So For me that was like the pivotal change in my life but I brought it before him in podcast is that I listened to alternative music in the 80s and I remember, the, I remember like one of the first cassettes I got was a Red Hot Chili Peppers cassette was um <laughs> It had the word coyotes in it. It escapes me. But um, I loved it because the cover was really wild and freaky looking, and that's the way they are. And so I was really turned on to them by an early age. And then just growing up, listening to R.E.M. and U2 was um, a big thing there because they were considered college radio music. And then it kind of switched, shifted into, like, alternative music. Yeah. But the big thing, you know, we'll get to 10. We'll get to, um, obviously, all these other albums. But why I listened to this morning, because I thought, out of all these albums, yeah, they, they had a they had a, a, a paragraph, you know, to, like, shift in what, how music went from one kind of thing to another kind of thing. But the big one that was huge and very impactful was U2. And U2 went from being, like, having Josh Retree come out, Rattle and Hum, and being, like, 
huge. Like they were like the hugest band in the world at that point. And then when they came out with Octone Baby, it was like they took like a 180 from what everything they did. They still stayed true to their like you know alternative roots, their you know their 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 sound in a, in a lot of ways, but they tried out so many different things. They recorded the album in Germany. I remember watching the documentary on Octone Baby, and they were going through a lot of shit during that time too, especially Edge. Edge was going through a divorce, and you can feel it in the music, man. It like the music just has a lot of emotion in it. And it has a lot of artiste in it because there's like it's like a seminal character as far as like you could feel Bono shifting into like this whole other like image of what a frontman was. And for, for I'd love to know what your guys' opinion is. I mean, you've you're obviously younger than me, like I just suggested, but you've listened to their catalog. Do you guys understand like the shift that they did from like everything before that album to like everything after that album? I can't do it because I mean I never got big into them, but I understand it was kind of like the tipping point because I mean, obviously watch like the Red Rocks video like in the mid '80s, like crowds only half full, but it's like the diehards versus like now like they wouldn't even touch a place like that. They have to play a Soldier Field. They have to play a place with sixty thousand yeah. seats when you go see them. And when you say have to, it's because they're going to sell out. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean they 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 have people coming. They're going to go to their shows. I have like a you know some other friends that like that's one of their top lists. Um, my friend Dustin has been on the podcast, and my friend Jack, that's one of their top list people to see. Is Would, would you say U2 is a world band? Yes, they or, are the, yeah. probably so, the, anyway. they are probably the hugest world band up there with now Foo Fighters. Paul McCartney, because Paul, Paul McCartney can travel and do that. Rolling uh, Stones, obviously. Elton John. Elton John, yeah. I mean, there's U2 can still sell out no matter where they go. No matter what. Even, even if it's just like a run of the mill album, like, because you know they're going to play like two new songs off it yeah. and then they're going to play the rest of their hits. They're they're like the guys that know what they're doing out there. Mm-hmm. Like, no kill, all killer, no filler. They're not going to bore you with a new album. Even, even if they love that album, they're going to still stick true and play for the diehards and then play for the casual fans. You got to kind of touch all the bases seeing them. Well, you almost have to be in a huge stadium like that if you're a world band. Think of all the people that probably travel from. Germany, or to come see him at a Soldier Field, Chicago, or but look at that's the way Pearl Jam is too. Yes. So I mean, but yes, they they will have people fly in just to see them. I mean, they did that for that Paris show that I, I think I mentioned back. Yeah. You know, is that? But they have a big enough catalog where they've had enough hits where they could play nothing but that mm-hmm. because like ten, like all those songs I don't know that were singles. There's like two or three songs that didn't ever make it to the radio. So yes. when you're going to see a band like that, it's like yeah, they're all hits because. They write albums of nothing but hits. You're gonna hear some random B sides as a as a fan be like, oh my god, they're playing that, but yeah. you're not gonna go away disappointed because like they're gonna play something you love to hear every show. Yeah, sure. so oh for sure. I mean, you too, especially. Uh, I mean, that, that think about all the catalog. I mean, they could have like a three disc probably greatest hits album out at this point because yeah. they have so many hits from so many other albums. The the Octung Baby. I mean, alone the the tracks on that album. Like, so, I went and saw them during that tour also. Um, they played in Ames. I was still living here in Iowa at that point. They had, um, and I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, they had Primus open up for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had Primus open up for them, and they had a band called Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, which was Michael Franti's first band he was in. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, and it was a very political band, a very, um, they were like modern-day 
public enemy in a way, a lot more political in this in the sense um, from the West Coast instead of like the East Coast and that and that factor. But the Zoo Tour is what it was called, and it was it was a show. So they went from like being a great stage show to being a big great. That was the point where they were the great elaborate show, which they are now. Big stage set, big a lot stuff going on. TVs. They had a satellite hookup and everything for this to like do all this weird stuff during the show and stuff. Yeah, because I recall didn't they call like George Bush from like a show? Yes, yes. So it was, I, don't, I don't think he picked up, but like they tried calling the president of the United States yeah. during a show. They were they were that big and had access to do something like that. Wow. With that being said, they did get a lot of shit though for that tour, and to this day, Bono still gets shit. For being pretentious and being like, you know, just shut up and do the music kind of persona. Yeah. You know, they were always a political band. And that's like, you know, the whole thing we said with Eddie Vedder, the same thing with Bono. It's like, yeah, you can't listen to Sunday Bloody Sunday, yeah. dance to it, and not get what's going on with that song. Exactly. Even though, but most Americans won't even know what that song's about. Exactly. Because it, it's a, it's strictly an Irish, Northern Ireland yeah, aspect. Mm-hmm. Just look where they came from. That's... They've always supported Amnesty International. They've always supported the underdog and, and causes with that tour and with how huge they were with everything before and being this huge thing that was in America, this Irish man, when that tour and that album came out, there was a shift in the fans that the diehard fans, you know, some of the diehard fans like, what's this? Are they trying to be like artistic and different. Oh, no. They were just pushing the envelope in their sound, which in my opinion, created so many great albums and songs after that. I mean, you wouldn't have all that you can't leave behind. All that you can't leave behind. Yeah. I mean that, that album was very huge on also an emotional level and, poli- and an, more of like a what we are all thinking inside. And the thing about that was that album was created before 9-11. It was 9-11 that boosted the morale of that mm-hmm. album because of just the words and the meaning behind it. Well, with that being said, you wouldn't have that album. You wouldn't have a lot of the material they had after Octung Baby if they didn't do that. They had so many hits off that album, too. They had even better than the real thing. One has been covered by so many people, like Mary J. Blige, and, and it's just a one person to name it that was really huge with it. But a lot of people have covered that song acoustically, melodically. Uh, they've used Until the End of the World, I know, in multiple song, sorry, multiple movies. Uh, the Fly was like this whole little like more alternative sound when that came out. But Mysterious Ways is huge. Uh, who's Going to Ride Your Wild Horses is another one I have heard. That one gets a lot of play out there. It's a beautiful song, too. A really beautiful song. The song that I was just talking about was uh, Edge had you know was going through a, a divorce, and if you listen to the words to "Love Is Blindness," you can hear like his what he was going through. I mean, he was he was going through a really bitter divorce, and it, a lot of it, I think had to do with that shift from like being a regular you know band to like being this huge band. And it made me think about like all these artists that have to go through things like that. You've seen like. You know, multiple artists get divorced because they go from being just a normal person to a big persona. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on? Um, have you? When's the last you said you listened to Talk to the Baby? Did you listen to it? No, I mean, I, I just know like the meat and potatoes of it. I yeah. mean, they're, they're just one of those bands I never got super deep into, but mm-hmm. like I, I appreciate everything they do with what they do. So, yeah. well, let's say Mysterious Ways was one of the first songs that I ever heard from them like, mm-hmm. on the radio. I just, growing up, my yeah. dad. Be like, oh, that's you too. I'm like, that's you too. <laughs> I'd, I'd say probably one of the bigger ones is like, where the streets have no name, or still haven't found what I'm looking for. But that's obviously because it's that's the go-to for me. For you too is the Joshua. Or even like with yes. a, with or without you. Like, I mean, that that's another album where it's like, 
three quarters of it was released to the general public as singles. You know, yes, like I got all the forty fives from that album because that that's how much that album was to me too. I love that album so much, and and the artwork is what I was going to bring out. I've talked about this before when when I sat down with you separately and you separately, JT, is that what is your artwork that influences you or that you notice that inspires you or even impacts you for that matter? And Anton Corbin, I believe is his name, did the photography work for that album and also did the photography work for Joshua Tree. And he used a different color tone when it came to Octung Baby than he did in his previous albums. But he also worked with like um, Depeche Mode and like, you know, Bruce Springsteen, a bunch of different artists because his artwork is very like black and white yet um, uses these tones. And I remember that. I remember having a friend at that time who was a huge U2 fan. And he was even like, wasn't sure about it because he was like, well, what are they trying to do here? Me, I, I, I always embrace different and challenging things, even if it's a little different or not. Sometimes it can be like great to break out of your, um, your box. So. Yes. The big album that was out that year that obviously made an impact that I've talked to people in multiple uh, podcasts. And I think even you, JT, said to me that I'm not sure. Um, there's a lot of people that don't find Nevermind by Nirvana like this album that a lot of people put up on this yeah pedestal. I think that was me I, I mean like it what it did for music and society stellar but like I mean like because we're gonna probably talk about it in a few minutes but like that year like three of the most groundbreaking groundbreaking grunge albums came out in the same yeah. year that will never happen again no I mean we and I've talked about like how these other two bands went above and beyond what Nirvana did and those other two bands are obviously Soundgarden and Pearl Jam mm-hmm. both selling putting out two of their best albums alongside mm-hmm. Nirvana. I mean, that was your, like, grunge hit. Like, that yeah. was, like, the nuclear bomb to Guns N' Roses, who ironically put out an album that same year. Yeah. Two of them. Yeah, they put out two albums, and both both albums are stellar albums. And I had a thing pop up this morning. It's, it's, it's great that you bring that, that album up, because they were the only band that transitioned from that whole hair metal era from the 80s into the next uh, next decade. Next decade, and the only reason why is because they were true to their form. They weren't trying to be like an image. They were being about their music, and they definitely, you know. But I will say, grunge torpedoed them yes. like in that year. That even though they released those albums after that, that was their that game. That was pretty over. much it. But they about but the band imploded too. You know that had to deal with um, Axel's, you know lead singer syndrome you know he was, yeah. he was, he was, he was no that most definitely but I mean it didn't help that like they were releasing this album they spend so much time on mm-hmm. to find out like a band that writes three chords is selling 20 million copies of an album and yes changing yeah. fashion and well, just uh, culture in general and a band kind of in that same vein I even wrote down was Skid Row mm-hmm. Slave to the Grind that album uh-huh. I love it as far as how heavy it is but it's nothing like their 80s hair metal that they had before that like, album came out that year yeah 91 wow holy cow yeah that's why i was like going through i'm like man all the, i couldn't imagine if i was alive then like say i was like 16 17 years old i would have no money i'd just be non-stop buying all these albums like probably half my catalog is from this early 90s era yeah you know especially with grunge obviously it's one of my my top ones but and i believe if i'm not mistaken Bon Jovi helped Skid Row get off their feet, from my, from what I remember. I believe they were an opening act for them during that era, which was they did it for them and Cinderella. They did it for a few bands, you know. They were Bon Jovi was so huge. Yeah. 
but you gotta understand what something you may not know you may know is that Bon Jovi got a lot of shit from all the other hair metal bands because they yeah. were more squeaky clean quote unquote than they were you know because it'd be like it'd be like a tattoo artist not having tattoos I mean because they were from the suburbs of New Jersey and it's like they're writing off this metal band stuff like they're not like Guns N' Roses which yeah. if you think about it, ironically Axl Rose is from Indiana he went yes. out to LA so it's like it's like yeah. the bands like that had nowhere to talk when they're saying like you're posers it's like if you get up and want to play music, go ahead and play it, you know? Yeah, it's like John Mayer playing the blues because he's not, he plays blues just as well as all the bluesmen. It's like you can't call somebody a poser or knock on them yes. for an image. If you do what you do and do it well, that's all that matters. Yeah. Have you seen that Welcome to the Jungle video? Oh, uh, yes. You know how it starts out with him coming off the bus? Yeah. That's supposed to be like him, as really? you know. Yeah, like he, uh, he transitioned from this Indiana guy to like this rock star out in L.A. And then when I think about it, even like Tom Petty kind of lampoons that with like uh, Into the Great Wide Open because it's about the same thing like a sure. guy going to California from the sticks and just turning into like some kind of a rock star. And that was one of the albums too. That was big. Yeah. I mean, as far as I love Tom Petty, it's one of oh, my... Oh, Full Moon Fever. Yeah, it's a yeah. great album. It's another album yeah. that's just And that's another one that kind of like, that was a, a resurgence of his because like he kind of fell off in the mid-80s and that was another yeah. one of his... Well, comebacks mm -hmm. and I, I don't know if you remember but I feel like the late 80s for him was kind of like he kind of went towards whatever the main sound was a little bit like it felt like he was getting away from what made Tom Petty great and yes. then the, the Ruben <laughs> resurgence and that full moon fever was like mm. just absolute stick to what even if like if you listen to the drums it's the most simple thing in most of these songs but mm -hmm. it's perfect yes it's, there's nothing but he has his own little twist to it you know but that's what I love about Tom Petty yeah, and it's funny you bring Tom Petty up and Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin produced uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Yeah. So basically, that was the catapult to like Red Hot Chili Peppers shift in their career because they were a successful alternative band before that, but they weren't like this huge band that went even farther than they can even possibly imagine. And that was just a taste, if you can think about it, because they still had like two more albums to come out with, maybe three. Even bigger than those. Yeah. I mean, Californication, come on. I mean, that, that album was gigantic. I mean, the Stadium Arcadium was huge when I was yes. there. Yeah. So I'll have to, I have to go back and make a correction on something I said. Uh, Full Moon Fever didn't have Into the Great White Open. Into the Great White Open was its own, was yeah. the self titled track from yes. that album. Yes. But it was all kind of lumped together because, like, those two albums had, like, the meat of his hits. I mean, yeah. Full Learning Moon Fever. I mean, yeah. Like, Into the Great White Open had. Learning to Fly, Into the Great Wide Open, and then a couple others, but that was just kind of his... And then he went off and did his own thing with You Don't Know How It Feels on his Wildflowers album. That's when he really... Well, that was a couple years later. That wasn't 91, obviously, no, but it but was kind of like the catapulting him back into, like, mainstream. Well, and that kind of leads back into what you were talking about with the Chili Peppers. The uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic was my first introduction to them as far as... Mm -hmm. My cousin was a humongous fan. Like he listened to Mother's Milk and all the yes, weird yes. gritty ones, and I'm like, eh, it's not my thing really. But yeah. he got me to listen to it, and then he was like, you should listen to this one. And then I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, that's where that song came from, you know, Under the Bridge. That yeah. song is overplayed in my opinion. On radio, yeah, but, but you know what that song's about, right? Yes. I mean, you, I mean that's. I've read his autobiography. It's just one of those things where it's like this song is like. If you really delve into what it's about, it's the saddest song. Oh, yeah. that was huge. You know, I mean. And it kind of goes and shows a lot of what they had to deal with and everything during that whole, you know, time in that scene. Um, and a lot of drugs in L.A., you know, during the whole 80s up until 
the 90s for that matter you know a lot of heroin use going on by both bands you know i mean not so much at that point for that chili peppers but for guns and roses um if you think about even the Seattle scene with, you know, um, Mike McCready was dealing with some shit. There, there is this thing that was going on in the undertone of the music that was like an inner, like, sorrow, I guess you could say, that a lot of these artists were dealing with in their music, and people were feeling it. People were, you know, getting into it. And the, that was one thing, reading his uh, autobiography, not to go on a side tangent, but... No, no. Uh, Anthony Kiedis, see, there's some horrible stuff that he grew up with as mm-hmm. far as his father and like 12, 13, when he started doing drugs, the hard drugs. When you just face value <laughs> listen under the bridge, you're kind of like, oh, it's got a nice little beat and everything. But when you actually know the backstory to it, it's like, oh my gosh, my only, one of the saddest things. that Because yeah. you know from reading that book, too, like how he was feeling. A few months back, um, I watched a couple different segments on Flea, because he had a book come out later last year, earlier this year, called Kids on Acid, I believe it was called. And he talks about even his, you know, issue with a lot of stuff he was dealing with. That was one of those things where when the two of them were brought together, it created this whole thing that it, it, it was, you know, they say people are meant to be together. That's what Flea says is that they were meant to be together and they are like brothers. It's like they, you know, they fight and they argue like any anybody does. They have this thing when they come together that creates what this whole band is. And also with even John, John Frustante. You know, he has made their best albums with them. And then even talks about that, you know, in the uh, the uh, thing I read here is that it talks about how John was this whole reason why they shifted along with Rick Rubin into this whole new sound because they were being more, like, experimental. Yeah, because, like, he's left the band, like, three times now. It's like, every time he leaves, they just kind of fall off. I mean, they write stuff that feels like Chili Peppers, but... Yeah. Now he's back again. Not, yeah. That's why I'm because like he because he le- he left like right after Blood Sugar Sex Magic like a year or two after yeah when they were blowing up was Josh Klinghoffer is that the one who filled in right at the or second time because then he yeah. le- he left because he got uh, for Shiny left in the early nineties because he got addicted to heroin he <laughs> yes. came back for Californication Which, and then he left like an album or two after and then he's back now again so yeah. Klinghoffer came after he left that second time and it, yes it, not to put him down or anything but like it's just you can't live up to John Frusciani you know what I mean like if yeah. someone kind of sets that bar mm-hmm. dude he did great you know it's just it's not there there's tough because yeah. like you can Film play issues. you can you can play like somebody but you're not that person mm-hmm. yeah and it's, it's a distinct sound. it just doesn't yeah it just doesn't I mean they sound the same but it doesn't just bring that chemistry to the way the band's just bouncing ideas off yeah. each other they tried to do it with Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction for one album that album's pretty decent don't get me wrong yeah, it's it's just not the same, and there is a there is a connection with bands when it comes to certain lineups, and you, even with you know GNR touring with just the three of them now, it's not going to be the same as Appetite. It's not going to be the same as you know Use Your Illusion one and two, because there was a time when that they were at their pivotal moments. You get the same shit you see it on fan pages with Pearl Jam. Where's Dave? When why don't include Dave? And it's, okay, we've shifted. We've gone to another direction. You know, I mean, it, as much as you want to, yeah. and as much as you might think it's going to be this thing that it was, it, it sometimes isn't. And I still think Matt Cameron does a fantastic job. Yeah. Like yes. I, I, all the stuff, it's like I think they're just shitty high schoolers. Like this guy was my friend. Like, and they yeah. still can't get over it. Twenty five years later, it's like it's amazing, and it's just you know, get over it, man, because. I am a fan. I appreciate their music, and I'm going to go see them and do what they want. I'm not going to hate on them because I, as a fan, expect them to 
live a life that yeah. I want to live. I'm like, well, what's that about as a fan? You well, know? if you don't like it, then... <laughs> yeah. Matt Cameron drummed on... <laughs> Matt Cameron drummed on two, of the, two out of the three biggest albums probably of the last 30 years. Yes. Yeah. If you won't even count when he did, like, later on with Soundgarden, like, Down on the Upside and Super Unknown. Like, mm-hmm. his catalog is more than half these people playing drums in their basement could ever exactly. expect to hear. And it's funny, we, all, we can bring up another guy, too, that ties into, like... These bands too is Jack Irons. Jack Irons played with Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he played with Pearl Jam for a short stint. So these guys have a big family of like yeah. where they can draw from. And I'll say Jack Irons it. just left because he didn't want to tour. I mean, he exactly. did. He, it wasn't because he was a bad guy. I mean, he no. just didn't want to be doing it. You know, where a lot of that shit pandered from this week was that whole Funko Pop thing, because yeah. they're they're all the old images of them, and even the old image of Matt Cameron. So people are like, why wasn't Dave put in here? And it's like. Hold on. I mean, let me do the entire lineup. Who's ever, you know, it's like, that's not how it's going to work. It's, it's out of fun. You're taking it way too seriously. Sit back, relax, and, and enjoy it. It's know? like people talk about the Foo Fighters now going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, why William Goldsmith doesn't get in? Why yeah. Franz doesn't get in? Because they didn't record on any albums. They yes. were just, I mean, William Goldsmith, that's, can be talked about all day long on his own podcast. Like, mm-hmm. Dave re recording the guitar parts to Color and Shape. Yes. At the end of the day, that's just what it is. Dave Grohl wishes he could take it back, but he can't. People and, just... And would he? No, he doesn't he's have to. He doesn't have to answer anybody. But at that point, when you're... He was almost 30 when they recorded that album. You know, like, if you don't release this album the way it needs to be heard by the label, who's going to release it? You could be back waiting tables. Like, he just... Yes. Because it wasn't even, like, their first album. Color and Shape was what broke the Foo Fighters. Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember getting that album and just being like, holy crap, this album's a great... Could he done things differently? Maybe, but it's just, mm-hmm. it should be just water under the bridge. I mean, it's yeah, youth. It's youth. It's something you did in your youth. I mean, yeah. I, I do think that, like, for example, like Dave Abaruzzi is, to me, probably the, the best encapsulation of Pearl Jam at that time yes. as far as the drumming. Yes. But Matt Cameron is a professional through and through. Like, that but, guy's amazing. But yeah. who just says in an alternate universe that Eddie didn't ask Matt to drum on 10? People wouldn't even have that argument. Sure. They would have been like, oh my God, like, who's this Dave guy that comes in the band after Matt Cameron leaves to go <laughs> yeah. tour with Soundgarden? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, you can't make him happy either way because they would have mm-hmm. been like, oh my God, Matt Cameron's like one of the hardest hitting drummers out there. Like, he just, yeah. man's a machine. Yeah, for sure. Workaholic, man. too. I mean, he was splitting tour with. Uh, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam at the same mm-hmm. time, and like that's insane. I mean, it's yeah, Grand, Grand and Soundgarden broke up 15 years between, but like when that period of like 2011, yeah, he was out there doing both. I mean, that's a lot of drumming. Yes, you've seen a Pearl Jam show, you know yeah. how much it takes for three hours, and then it's like, yeah, we're gonna fly just... here and you're gonna drum for this, and you gotta remember all these drum parts. It's like, yeah, I can it... nothing but the most props for that. And they look like they're having fun up there, too. And that's you know, the thing about it is you can't tie everything into. It's like with your own job. If you tie everything you're doing into your one job and you don't do anything else that you enjoy, it gets placent. So that's what I love about bands like that is that, hey, let's go do this. Let's go, you know, try to do different things, you know, let's create my own work. Let's produce albums. Let's do, you know, the soundtrack, whatever it might be. And they kind of go do their own things and they enjoy it. It's hard to always try to stay placent in the sense that, we're going to keep this image going as far as we can to collect a paycheck. No, because if you keep on trying to do yeah. that, you're going to fall apart and it, it's going to fall apart on. And I think that's what's so great about going back to Blood Sugar Suck Magic and going back to Red Hot Chili Peppers is that 
they'll probably take John back a million times over. Oh, yeah. Like, this is the third time now, yeah. you know, and I think it's because they know what they can capture when, when they get together. And if John wants to go do his own thing because he needs to and they can put somebody else in there and create things still, do it. I was reading an article this week on the Go-Go's. That made me think about, okay, what other you know female bands have an entire female lineup? And I was looking into the Bangles. And the Bangles you know, had a lot of hits during the 80s. And they were a really good band. Susanna Hoffs is a great songwriter. I was looking through and she wrote almost all their material. It's exceptional. Some of them helped and they, you know, and then obviously Manic Monday was done by Prince. That mm-hmm. was their big break. She, she went on to have a pretty decent solo career on her own. They went through and changed their lineup for this whole thing they're doing, this re- resurgence they're doing. And they went back to their original bass player that was with them from the beginning that left to do her own thing. What I'm getting at here with this is that you're going to change lineups and sometimes things aren't going to be the way you want them to be. But as long as they're going out and doing the music and enjoying it, that's what it should come down to mm. in, any, in any essence, yeah. you know. Yeah. <clears throat> I wanted to bring this up in the podcast is that speaking of like side projects and doing your own thing, me and JT went and saw, um, we went and saw um, the Nielsen Trust. Yeah, Nielsen Trust, uh, which is Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, his son Dax, who drums with Cheap Trick, and then his other son Miles, who has a band called Miles Nielsen and the Rusted Hearts. Mashup of all them. So. And uh, you brought them up in a podcast way back. Yeah, because well, I think we were talking about live music in Mexico. So I think they were supposed to be coming like, to the Rust Belt, which is finally reopened now to mm-hmm. shows this week. And how did you get into them? Um, my friend, who Sean Ryan, who's in a local group called The Dawn, had him come play his festival, Dawn and On, and the song. So, and then he came and played a show at a friend of mine's house for a private party in their living room. Oh, nice. Kind of a cool little. And everybody knows who Rick Nielsen is. Rick Nielsen is from Cheap Trick, obviously one of legendary guitarists, legendary yeah. guitarist and legendary uh, pick thrower at this point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were at that show, and I couldn't believe how many freaking picks. He, he was probably throwing. Two, probably two, three hundred, and he had even more in his pockets. He throws mine yeah. at the end of the show just. Making it rain. How many did you end up with? Like four, three or four. Yeah. And I got like two of Miles's. You uh, got a hold of me, I think, a week or two before the show. Yeah, I won, t- I won tickets in a radio giveaway because I was like, I saw the advertising, like, yeah, I just don't know about going to a show on a Thursday night, but then I just won the tickets, like, hell, why not? And he and you turned me on, though. I was really, I enjoyed it. It was it was my first show back after the pandemic. Rick is an, an exceptional guitar player, and he has his, his own sound and his, and his outright. I was impressed by the band. I thought, you know, that they were amazing. Mm-hmm. And the brother's also the drummer. The brother Dax, yeah. He's also drummed on, like, the Seth Meyers show as, like, a guest fill-in spot. Like, oh, really? So, yeah, he's a talented family. You know? And then uh, the openers, uh, for the first opening act, were some friends of mine in the local scene doing a tribute to Eric Clapton. So they were really heavy on like the Layla and the, like Derek and the Dominoes was a really good kind of set. I really enjoyed that. I was like, who, who are these guys? Whole bunch of people. Uh, Main singer's Al Sweet. He does like the All Sweat Productions. Okay. So uh, he'll, he'll do like, they have a upcoming one where they're going to do the Beatles Abbey Road from start to finish. Nice. They did one a couple years ago back when Alice Kell was running the, RME, but he unfortunately has passed since. But like I was at that show when they did that. They've done ones where they do like Prince tributes, Nirvana tributes. They do like, mm-hmm. and it's just a collection of some of the more most talented just members of the Quad Cities music scene coming together to put on these shows. I was very impressed with that night. I, I love collaborations like that because mm-hmm. they have they had how many guitarists? 
two. I think they had the two guitarists and then the bassist. They had keyboards. They had three basic singers, but then again, the guitarist was singing too at one point. Yeah. I, I was blown away. Yeah, but like really all the good. guitarists sing in that band. So the act right before the Nielsen Trust was uh, Nick Perry and the Underground Thieves. Mm-hmm. Real kind of like bluesy, kind of like the Black Keys, but just real, real more fleshed out with like 70s influences. Kind of like the earlier Black Keys, but not as much dirt behind it, but like more polished, yeah. real southern rock kind of feel to it. And I really enjoyed him too. He's an exceptional guitarist. Yeah, like, and I met him after the show. Real nice guy. Like, talked about gear for a few minutes. Like, he was in an early 2000s band called Silver Tide. He was a guitarist for that band. They had some hits because, like, they kind of got lumped in with, like, the Nickelback and the Hinder kind of stuff. I mean, they wrote good songs, but it was just kind of like, not the time to be alive and be in that kind of a band because where do you go but down, like, after... Yeah. After that point. But, like, real nice guy, like, just loves what he does and just has some awesome looking guitars. So, yeah, I think a lot of bands are enjoying what they're doing. Not to break away from his lime, you know, his limelight, but his sister is Christina. Christina Perry. Yeah. Who did that song Jar of Hearts, and then she did like a thousand years, like the from like the Twilight movies. I was just like she, yeah, she, yeah, yeah, like. Because yeah. now you know, I've never really knew anything about her until John. Mentioned I mean, I, I hear the song at, at a place where I, the place where I work, but it's just. They play one of her songs? They play, they, yeah, because they were from the Twilight movies. That okay. Jar of Hearts. Like, yeah. you, you've heard that song. I probably have. Yeah. And then uh, A Thousand Years. Okay. Like, you, you know them. Like, it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of kind of a cool thing. Really happy that uh, JT invited me to go see this. And it got me that, that live feed again. Like, oh, I can't wait to see more live shows. And also, um, the last podcast I just recorded was with our good friend, Ben. But everybody else still knows him out there is Bo Oren. Um, he's doing actually a show tonight at Fairgrounds, Mississippi Valley Fairgrounds. So yeah, I was really, really yeah, I'm happy. Glad to see him kind of getting out there and playing. I've I've gotten up and played with him on a couple things at some of the open jam nights we go yeah. to. But because I think I think he's he's just as self conscious as I am. Some of the playing, it's like I think he mm-hmm. he downplays his playing a lot, but he's fantastic. You know, yeah. he's just. I think I, I told him in that last podcast that just keep on feeling what you love, man, and it's going to come out. Don't try to be like anybody else. Don't try to like you know think you have to be a certain kind of style or whatever. I think the more he just keeps on feeling himself out in his music, he's going to be fine. I just wanted to bring it back full circle there because we all worked with him at one point. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I'm really. Proud I didn't of even him. know until all of a sudden he started posting stuff. Like, oh, I didn't know you're out there doing that. You know, yeah. everyone like who's known me at work knows I'm passionate about music or guitar things like or trivia like because trivia's kind of had the kibosh on it because of the mm-hmm. whole covid hopefully starting again it's like i've been going out to more jam nights now because it frees up time because i can't go yeah play bar trivia so it's kind of i know <laughs> you're <laughs> missing out on your trivia i've noticed yeah. you haven't any posts for that i know my guitar is getting better so it's kind of nothing wrong with that bro yeah, yeah, enjoy so, that one drop, one yeah. i know i bought a new baby this week because it's an early I birthday know, present so beautiful i'm gonna man. have to break it out and show it to the world sometime it's like yeah. it's still, still boxed up it's like can I hold off until September? But it's like I probably can't. Beautiful. The, the, the right the right deal came along at the right minute on it, so it's like just yeah. grab it. Yeah, everybody has their thing, you know. Like I like to collect records along with you, Reese, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you like obviously to collect uh, New York Yankees memorabilia here. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> I got a little bit of that. But I think John's got a great passion there with the guitars, and I love I love that guitar seeing that. And just going to concerts is another main passion. I mean, Lollapalooza is in a couple weeks, so it'll be. I know. It'll be interesting, kind of like peering through the lineup because I was talking about him like I'm getting drastically aged out of some of these lineups sometimes now but it's like oh, I can feel it there man but I mean <laughs> I, mean, I, t- I told him it's like on Saturday on Saturday night it's going to be Journey yes that Journey playing the same time as Post Malone 
Yeah. So it's like, wow, you yeah. got one thing or a way yeah. other thing. And it's like, I'll probably go check Journey. I mean, Post yeah. Malone, somebody, if I, even if I like his stuff, I could probably catch him somewhere down the road. Like, I like Post Malone a lot. Yeah, but Journey's, very Journey would just be the kind of thing, it's like, you know it's just going to be a fun show. You know what you're going to get. Yes. Like, you know they're going to play the same set list, but it's going to be like, once again, one of those bands is going to go out. They'll have 25 songs they'll play, and you know 22 of the 25 because you've heard them the yeah. past 40 years. Like, yeah. you know what you're getting. It's like Post Malone's like, He's gonna play his biggest hits. Like he'll like maybe the one song two albums ago you wanted to hear. He's not gonna play because now he has another new album. He's in the ascending stage basically, where it's like uh-huh. I feel like Journey is there. And you're like our catalog's so good, we play this till we die. So it's, it's just kind of like yeah, we can coast it, and go. It, to it's a weird, it's a weird thing to see at a major musical festival like I that. I like but, it though, but yeah, it's but it's cool. It. Yeah, it's, and it should be more of that. I mean, because you're also talking uh, Limp Bizkit's gonna be playing like the yeah. night before, like. That's That'd be another one. It's like, it's like it's kind of funny. Like we can make fun of it all we want, but like we all had that um back in the day. Oh yeah. And now it's just gonna be. It's like just go back to being like your late teens, early twenties again for a few minutes. Everything old is always new, man. That's kind of what Lollapalooza is in that sense. And like, they've been good about that. I mean, one year they had live play, like with Ed Kowalczyk coming back after being gone for like a decade from the band, and then like the year after that was like Third Eye Blind. So it's like you get those yeah. mid-afternoon like. Chevelle played in 2019. Like you get those like mid 90s, early 2000s bands. It's a cool way to waste an hour of like your Saturday at a festival. Oh heck yeah! Well, I think I think it's also too like we go to the festival to have the feeling of this is my iPod back in the day, or this is the music, this is my playlist, and it's nice to be able to oh I'm gonna jump from here to here to here, and you just want it to feel like. This is exactly what I listen to all the time. I know, yeah. but I also like that feeling too. It's the Reese, the Reese Argo band. Like, who are these? And I come, yeah. like, oh my God, I'm going to go home and check them out. Like, that's the good thing too about... Discovery. I mean, this year it's a little weird with the lineup, but it's just more time to walk around. How do these guys sound? Okay, this doesn't suit me at all, so I'm going to go down to the next stage and just see who's playing. So, I mean, sometimes, like, too many good names. He and I were talking, Reese and I were talking about this. Could you imagine, like, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam playing at the same damn time, same night? I'm gonna have to spend, like, 45 minutes to 45 minutes. There was this one year, like, Muse was playing the same time and same night as Coldplay. It's like, I love both bands. I want to go see Muse, obviously, but it's like, you're just, and then I was telling him, uh, Jimmy World is playing the same time as the Black Pumas. Wow. It's like, I gotta see Jimmy. Jimmy's, my guitar is the same. You've seen them already, though, haven't you, Jimmy? Twice, but that, <laughs> but that, but that new guitar I bought, model off Jimmy, Jim Atkins. It's one of your Rope. favorite bands. Yeah, it's like, and I could probably see the Black Pumas again, but it's just one of those things where it's like, I oh, heard you've them. already seen them. Okay, no, I haven't seen the Black Pumas, but oh. like, wanting to see them, it's like you have to go sometimes with your comfort because they're gonna play those songs you love. This is the songs that give you the feels. It's like, and hopefully oh, the Black sure. Pumas will. They're a great come around great and play. Band, I was telling them, like they're young, like yeah. they just do like that real bluesy. You just see these bands like these guys shouldn't be playing this music because I mean they're just it's like living color. Like you get African Americans like playing like straightforward rock blues stuff. Like people aren't expecting that to come out. Like yeah. when they were out in the early '90s, like call to personality. It's like sure. they're still touring though. They're still doing their thing, yeah. which is awesome. They have a great fan base. Yeah, you know? just like we just talked about Journey. You know, one thing about Journey fans is that they don't stop believing. <laughs> oh my god I'm gonna, I'm gonna let that joke slide <laughs> no but, but I mean but, but it's, it's cool when like bands can break down the preconceived notions I mean like Eminem rapping yeah that was one of the albums too you know we, we were looking in the as far as 91 well 
we went to 2001 because we just went up. It just seems weird because like you were talking about on a previous one about the 71 greatest year of music ever, then 81, 91, and like even 01, which I sent you some of the ones from theirs. It just seems cyclical. Like maybe at the start of the decade, you're just getting... And you said, what, 81 then? Yeah, 81 I had this pulled up. Not the strongest year, but like it was a real emergence of pop and just like mm -hmm. rock in my opinion. I mean, picture, uh, Moving Pictures by Rush was one. Oh, wow. Uh, probably arguably the last Rolling Stones album that was ever regarded as good with Tattoo You. Oh, mine's a great album, man. It's such a good album. Uh, Ghost in the Machine by The Police. Uh, Fair Warning by Van Halen. Wow. Uh Face Value by Phil Collins. Yeah, that's my favorite. Which is kind of weird because like that was the same year as Abacab by Genesis, so they were kind of like that. Back on back on that, each other. That overlap. Uh, Belladonna by Stevie Nicks. Wow. Uh, what else do I have here? Uh, Night Clubbing by Grace Jones, who I never really got into. She was, she was big in the 80s. Early, early 80s. People have no, like, she was part of the whole Studio 54 scene. But she was also and had played a, a villain in one of the James Bond movies. Had Duran Duran do the theme song, which was what Beautiful else? Kill. Let me see what else came um, out. Uh, Too Fast for Love, Motley Crue came out. That could be the kickstart, no pun intended. <laughs> to, uh, oh, he got, he's got it yeah, too. Yeah. No, the, the, to like the hair metal. Because like that was kind of like, yeah. you were ending the 70s, like your Zeppelin, like your ACDC. Like that was kind of the merge of like that Sunset Strip scene. Yes. Hard Promises, Tom Petty, but that was still early level Tom mm -hmm. Petty. Shake it up by the cars. And that was just the beginning of their big you break know, into. Yeah, because they still had a, one or two albums to go before and then, they uh, huger than that. Another band we just got done talking about, Escape by Journey, was 81. Uh -huh. So it's kind of like, it's, you just. It's their biggest one. Yeah. Breeze, yeah. that's like one of your all time favorite albums. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so Would like, you say it's top five for you or top 10? Uh, yeah, I'd say top five. That's, okay. that's like, uh, if, if I were to ever give somebody a Journey album, that's the one I would give them. Just because. Mm -hmm. Front to back, every song's just that because 1983 album they made. Why am I blanking on it? Frontiers. Uh -huh. They say that that was like Journey's peak. Yeah. But I think 1981 was their peak as a band of just the culmination of Jonathan Kane and everybody had their. I don't know. I feel like that is Steve Perry at his best yeah. with Journey, just overall. In case you guys don't notice right now, we have a mascot here. <laughs> What's your puppy's name again? Cece. Cece. Yeah, she's, uh, she's being honored. No, but then uh, to that contrary, uh, I posted something this morning on my Facebook about listening to an album that came out 20 years ago. So let's go 20 years past 81 and 10 years past 91 to 2001 where we had like another yes. real... Resurgence, like this was what I wrote down. Like alternative makes its comeback. Cause I mean, it kind of, it kind of petered late nineties. You had all the butt rock, bro rock, like Limp Biscuit, Corn. What do you call it? But butt, butt rock, bro rock. Like it's just. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> no, but I mean, and, and then uh, to an extent, it was also like the emergence of the the band. Cause uh, you had the Strokes. The Strokes. We had the. That's, you love the Strokes, don't you? Yeah. Like I, at first, I was kind of like lukewarm but like I, they kind of grew on me so we have like is this it by the strokes like that album was huge in Europe before they even broke here like America's yes. kind of like we don't know about the strokes I mean they still really don't I mean the strokes are a really <laughs> kind of cultish band here I mean mm -hmm. in New York City they're going to sell Madison Square Garden but if they come to Chicago they're probably going to play someplace like the Aragon or they're going to play like a five six thousand seater versus being able to sell out like mm -hmm. an entire arena yeah. And then you also had that year, the White Stripes. White Blood Cells. That was the first album that I was like, God. Because I didn't even know at that point they had an album or two before that. Like, that was like, fell in love with a girl. 
Jack White wrote that album under the conception of not putting a single solo on it. So like all you heard was just it was just basically one giant riff for yeah. each song. Yeah, I don't know cool. if, if that Jack White guy should have like went out solo. I don't think he did. No. You know, you didn't even hear about him anymore. No. Right? no. <laughs> um, he's still pretty good for himself. Yes, no, but that that one, that, well but that one album I listened to uh, just because we got out of this tangent was Morning View by Incubus, another band that really great band. Yeah. Kind of hit it. 2001 Toxicity by System of a Down. Yeah, yes. That's, oh my gosh, that was that's, so good. That broke America's mind because they were around a couple years before, but like, A, it was released on 9 11, 2001. Mm-hmm. And then just like that culturally charged, that was kind of lit the political fire under America's ass. Because at that point, Rage Against the Machine broke up in 2000. So mm-hmm. they, yeah. were the, they were the new ones to kind of yes. carry on that mantle of like, don't always trust what your government says. Read a book, kind of start questioning what's going on around you. Well, yeah. and who was, uh, I think it was Jay Z, was the other one that was yeah, the Blueprint. Blueprint. Came out 9 11. And that's the thing is that. Good luck for your albums. There was, at that point, hip hop was really into its own mainstream, marketable sound. So you had a lot of hip hop getting thrown at you. And it was just like anything with pop music or rock music, you're going to have some really good stuff and some not so good stuff. Jay Z was able to have these reigns and be able to just be able to sell millions and millions of albums and actually produce really good content. You know, mm-hmm. it was actually before that. What was the album before the Blueprint? Uh, I want to say it was like one of the hard knock. It was like one of the hard knock lines or something, or something like that. that. Yeah, but the Blueprint. I remember we were coming out when I was working at the record store and just just amazing how we were selling this shitload of copies. You know, uh, another one here. Of course, this band's only released two albums since in the past 20 years, but Tool with Lateralis. Yes. They're a real... I appreciate what they do, but I need to get deeper into them. I can't speak as an expert, but I mean, they do what they do well, but they space it out so far. They're kind of a live culty band. Too. Yeah. People yeah. love them. They're an art rock band. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, you know, and they... I had tickets to Tool last year, and then obviously everything fell apart. And the thing is, I may not ever see them again, because it's one of those things where they are finally going to tour... Because they haven't toured in so many years, and it was great that everybody in the, earlier in the year got to go see them. And that was I hear my friends out in Colorado got to see them, and then the show got canceled. I was like, Damn it! Uh, you know? uh, another one. This was a huge one. I mean, she's made a resurgence, but she fell off the face of the earth for like a decade. Uh, Alicia Keys, songs in A minor. Yeah, oh, that yeah. was a big one. Like Fallen and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah, uh, but she's been producing stuff. She's I been, mean, but she kind of just fell off. Like the, she didn't have like a huge radio hit. Yeah, like she just kind of did a her thing. Huge fan of hers. Yeah, uh, I mean, stunned. she's amazing, amazing music. She actually has a new album coming out, which I'm yeah. excited to hear. Uh, another album. Uh, you couldn't escape this album, whether you were like the hardest metalhead in the world or loved like Yeehaw Country, uh, Survivor by Destiny's Child. Yes, that was another oh, yeah. big one. Like that was like. The head of like PRL on MTV. Yeah, that but, was like. But it was also the end coming to the end of, of that band, and, the re- uh-huh. and then in the rebirth a couple of years later of Beyonce. Beyonce yeah, the Queen Bee. And when I want when I want to bring up is Am- Amnesiac. I love Radiohead so much. I I talk about them a lot with you, JT, and I've talked about. Is that I actually got to see them during that tour also at Red Rocks, which was awesome. Oh. So that that to me, that album still is one of my top favorite albums of theirs. Another band like Love Them. I mean, they recently heard some bad news about one of their members, but uh, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket by Blink One Eighty Two. Because that was kind of <laughs> like big with Blink One Eighty Two. Yeah, they, they they just write the songs doing well. I mean, they're you're never gonna take them serious. They're just like a fun time to go watch and forget about your life for an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean, that was an album. I saw them tour that show on that album here. 
20 years ago tomorrow, because it was July the 4th, which uh -huh. is a weird night to have a show uh -huh. as any band. Because like, not yeah. a whole lot of bands want to play a tour date, but July 4th, 2001, at the Mark. The Mark. Oh, it was at the Mark. It'll right? always be at the Mark, yes. Yeah. Not the Pax. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm shocked they played around here. Yeah. That's awesome. But uh, opening act was Alkaline Trio. Wow. Holy cow. Newfound Glory Whoa. and Blink-182. Yeah. So it was like... That was a great all, Yeah, like all that. the pop yeah. punk you could take. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, another band, uh, Invisible Band by Travis, who yes. they do their thing. Kind another of, band that was huge in Great Britain, but not here. Still doing her thing. Yeah. But one else I wanted to bring up that's not together anymore that had a really huge album that year was Daft Punk mm -hmm. Discovery. Yeah. That, that was one of those bands that was influential to a lot of, like, dance electronic music. Uh, another popular now. Yeah. And then this other band, another... They're kind of oh, cultish yeah. in America, yeah. but gorillas like that broke America's mind too when they heard that. Like, oh, which is a spinoff of who? Blur, and then mm -hmm. some other groups. Because I mean, it has a whole bunch of British and international artists kind of collaborating on the music. And they actually tried something different, which worked to their advantage. Was you didn't know what they looked like. It was all um, animated, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, you knew who it was, but when they were playing on stage, they would play behind like curtains that would keep it blacked out. And um, here, here's one that, since we're from this area, Iowa by Slipknot. Wow, you know that was one of their hugest albums they ever had. Corey Taylor, who's just went on to do some great, amazing yeah. stuff. And then uh, another band that I really grew into liking, but like I wouldn't have known about them 20 years ago. Muse with like Origin of Symmetry. Like, they really broke a big here with, like, Starlight and Supermassive Black Hole. But, like, that was full-on, like, Queen fronting a punk metal band. You need to listen to them if you haven't. Like, you it's just... check out a few YouTube videos of them, like, playing in other countries. And like, the crowd. It's like it's like nuts. putting, like, full-on metal distortion behind a Queen. Yeah. That it's, it's something worth checking out. Another guy, John, and I tend to like, Ryan and Adam's Gold. I mean... He had he had a uh, song oh, on it. Yeah, he had a that no, album he, had a lot of um, he had attention. A, yeah, he had a song on it called New York, New York, which after 9-11 became a real anthem, rallying point kind of anthem because it was just saying, I, basically, I love New York without being like Frank Sinatra, yeah, like yeah. New York, New York. Another band I've mentioned a couple times, Jimmy World's Bleed America. That was the one that if that wouldn't have been for that album, they probably would have broken up. They had some fantastic albums before that, but like the middle, yeah. Sweetness, like all the that really touched off like all these later pop punk bands, like All American Rejects, things like that. That really kind of settled it off. I mean, it was emo without being like yeah. emo. I mean, they just were real <laughs> '80s pop influenced with it. Another one, not my favorite album. It was and it was the end of the era because it was another one of those albums, much like Beyonce's last album, Destiny's Child. But no doubts, rock steady. Yeah. Had a couple good songs, but like after that, like even that album, yeah. it was clearly the Gwen Stefani show with yes. the hired players. It has a couple good songs, but by no means. I mean, I'm just touching on that because it was the beginning of her you know, career blowing up, just like Survivor was for Beyonce. And another one that came out of the aftermath of one band breaking up, who later got back together to break up again, uh, Ben Folds rocking the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Like he's never going to do anything different. I mean, Ben Folds playing yeah. by himself is going to sound like Ben Folds Five. Yes. But that was a mentionable one. And the last one was probably a major resurgence. And think about this in terms of years. They're out, their last album before that came out in like 96. And this was 2001. So this is only five years, but Weezer's Green album. Yeah. You think about five years ago now, it's like, boom. It just was like five years ago. I can't remember. Like, that was a big thing, them getting back together and re-recording this album. That was a big thing. 
and they were like, is there going to be anything like Pinkerton? What happened? I mean... Uh, what was the big hits off the Green Album? The Green Album would have been Island in the Sun, okay. Hash Pipe. Oh, and they had, wow. a, they had a couple more, but I mean, it was also produced by Rick Ocasek of the Cars, who produced the Blue Album. So it was kind of a return to like... I didn't know that. Because like, mm-hmm. if you listen to... Well, Rick was like a big, major, um, pivotal thing in the success. You got you to gotta admit that, of Weezer. He helped, yeah. he helped their sound in the studio. Yeah, the Blue Album. Because then they came out with Pinkerton, which is just really, like, dark and just not really real poppy. Because no. he didn't produce that one. Then he comes back with the Green Album, which kind of brings them back to that same sound. And then, after that point, they just started rolling again. Like, I mean, they yeah. there's probably been only, like, two or three years, the past 15, 20 years, they haven't put an album out. That's one True. thing I love about River, Rivers Cuomo is that... In the last year, he's brought out a couple albums, like three albums I think they've had out in like the last year and a half. And I think since that point, he's stopped taking himself so seriously. Because exactly. I mean, he, he wrote Pinkerton. It was dark, angry. Yeah. Now he doesn't care. Like, he could be up there playing with Taylor Swift on one night, and then Dave Grohl the next, and then Eddie. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't care. He just... Yes. He made a whole album tribute to Eddie, you know, who's a fan of Weezer. You know, I mean... Yeah. What's that saying? You know, he just is all over the board. Like, yeah, he'll he'll throw whatever it is to the wall and whatever sticks, sticks. You know, it's like, and mm-hmm. I like that with some bands. You know, it's just like other bands that can sound desperate with Weezer. It's just because you know he grew up liking the Beach Boys, but then he also sings about loving Kiss. Yeah. And then liking Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons yeah. on mm-hmm. in the garage on the Blue Albums. You know, he's he's full on nerd and just yeah, just be owning it. Yeah, and there, that's and that's I think that's why the music sounds good. So even a mediocre Weezer album. Still sounds better than most people's other albums out there, just because they're not afraid to take chances and just they're having fun. They're they're all in their fifties now. It's like they're not going to write. That's crazy. Uh-huh. I know. I hear him coming out turning forty, but you see pictures of the Beatles and you're like, oh, growing up, you're like, oh man, they're so old. It's like, no, you look at them now. It's like they're like twenty two in those pictures. You're like, yeah, doing yeah, what they did. Like any Ed yeah. Sullivan show, they're all like twenty two, twenty three. Yeah. So twenty twenty years ago, there was a lot of different albums out and. And then uh, another album I wanted to bring up that you sent to me with a list of the 30 years ago albums was because they're no they're not together anymore. Um, there's actually two bands that are not out of those albums that are not together anymore. One because Soundgarden's no longer, but a band that's no longer together because they broke up was REM. That year, Out of Time came out. Um, that was March of '91, and that album was their big release at that point because of the MTV era. They had a song come out off the album called Losing My Religion. And I actually listened to that album this morning also. That album, that song to me still stands up to this day. Like you listen to it and you're like, here's a song being released to the MTV era that has mandolin in it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just one of these songs. Like if you would have said, hey, we're going to put a song out that has mandolin on it, it's going to be a big hit on the radio and MTV, you would have laughed at everybody probably True. at that point. And I mean, that album also has Shiny Happy People, which is like. Part of it's like part of it's a parody, but part of it's not. I mean, he's just trying to kind of take yeah. the piss out of things. So like, you feel like he's just the song's one big joke, but like, it's just a well-written song. Yeah. Yes. Radio song had uh, KRS One on it, and KRS One is considered a huge influence by a lot of MCs and hip artists from like the from the '80s. He was like, I mean, he he was a lyricist. He he, you know. So to have REM put like a hip hop artist on their album, it, it was definitely trying to keep up with that whole. And kind of played an important part with the whole crossbreeding of things. Like there was no expectations. There was like it opens up the album. Radio song has him, you know, rapping on it. And it was one of these albums that 
it was a shift, like you said, with Trendy Happy People, with that song, and then with Losing My Religion just being the song about how Michael Stipe was dealing with. It's actually on the Songster, I think, that's on uh, Netflix. He talks about the whole making of the album, a single album, and how it was like he was dealing with a lot of inner stuff at that point. You know, a lot of things that were released in that song, just dealing with emotion as far as um, losing his religion, you know. We're going to bring up, obviously, in the next podcast, the 30 years of 10. I would really like to kind of get an in-depth kind of like whole thing about that and how those songs and the impact they still have 30 years from now. But also, we kind of dealt with it a few episodes back, you know, me and you on some things. But um, the one album that I wanted to bring up that nobody hears about, and we've talked about artists that never get noticed or the recognition they deserve, is My Bloody Valentine with Loveless. And that album, um, what do you call that? Shoe what? Shoegaze is what they tend to call it. Yeah, Shoegaze. And My Bloody Valentine was like, if you listen to it, it influenced like every band from like um, Oasis to... They were really big on the guitar feedback. And this was like, you know, you got to understand, 90, 91. Guitar feedback wasn't really in some of those albums, but they had a lot of, let's see what the guitar can do and the really heavy, like, alternative sound. And that was their, like, basically their one and out, you know. And they had, you know, tried to do things after that, but it was just, they spent so much money on this album, like $500,000 or something like that, to get this album made that, I think it kind of imploded them also after that point. Yes, it was very influential, but then it's like the way I said earlier in the conversation, lightning in bottle, they're not going to capture this ever again. Um, what was we going to mention, John? Dangerous by Michael Jackson. Holy cow, yeah. Black and white, remember the time. Mm-hmm. like. And that was a big deal for him to deal with too because he was the king of pop and then for like all this rock and roll, alternative music getting all this attention, and then hip hop getting its attention. And that was like, kind of like the the meeting of the minds on that, because I mean, yes, he was the king reigning, like you know, number one album artist in the world, yeah. and then everything shifted for him. He he made a great album though. Don't get me wrong. It was still a big album, but yeah, that was kind of like the end of Jackson Mania. What was the song on that album? Black or White. Okay. They had uh, Remember the Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Macaulay Culkin in Black or White? Yeah, it was in the beginning. <laughs> that, that was because yeah. that just shows the age. Went, you know. with yeah. George Wendt. Wendt is the dad. <laughs> yeah, from and Cheers. like and they actually because the, the way that album played out at the end, you may not know this. He'll probably remember this. Like at the end of the video, shows him like on a deserted street destroying a car, and they reach down to cup his genitals, and it's like that got banned I mean it was just like he would do like the crotch grab but like yeah. that got banned from like TV they could only show it after a certain time of night like, like big, yeah oh man crazy. yeah oh uh, Heal the World was another one that was kind of like yeah. during like a they used that as like kind of a track for like famine or something like that going on in Africa at the time uh, some of those ones I mean they say here they released like nine singles from the album but I mean I only remember like three or four is it, is so. it Gone Too Soon is that one of them on there yeah yeah that's another one it's a good, really good one. He, yeah. he got more, uh, let's say, melodic, slow, like yeah. almost anthem-y for like a commercialization yeah. kind of. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that's not why he did it, but a lot of it felt that way. Uh, I love that album. Yeah, and he, and he, uh, I've listened to some podcasts with um, Questlove, like I talked about in the past. He was definitely having some issues right after that, finding himself, because his sister was getting a lot of attention. Like, if you don't, you know, the 90s was Janet more than it was it yeah. was Michael at that point. Janet, you know, she, well, she had this persona and this image, and but then she released Janet, 
and had this like infamous album cover where the guy is covering her in front of her a chest. Foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> and oh yeah. <laughs> JT, right? She had the nineties. I mean she obviously um at that point, thirty years ago, a great some great movies were released too. And I was gonna bring this up with the Guns N' Roses thing was that Terminator Two was released and it had You You Could Be Mine, which to me had one of the best drum intros of a song from that time. Just great like pump up, you know, drum intro. But Boys in the Hood came out also that year which was a very huge movie. And I remember seeing it in the theater and it dealt with what life was like in LA, what true life was like in LA during that time. And I loved John Singleton. He was a great director. He made many great movies. He, but he went on to direct Tupac and Janet Jackson, a movie called Poetic Justice after that, uh, which is a great, great movie. If you ever get a chance to check it out. Yeah. I'm not a huge man by any means still, but, you know their songs. Uh, Spin Doctor's Pocket Full of Kryptonite came out in 91. Like Little Miss, Can't Be Wrong, like Sp- uh, Toad the Wet Sprockets, Fear, had like Walk on Great. the Ocean oh, and yeah. they, All I Want. He's from, he lives in Colorado now and he actually did a benefit um, earlier in the year, the lead singer of that band. Um, they, they're one of those bands that I think they were really huge in the 90s and didn't get really, they kind of got booked underneath when as the music progressed. So kind of, they consider them kind of like a one-hit wonder, but they had more than one hit. Big, big, big album. Brian, not Ryan. Brian Adams, yeah. Waking Up the Neighbors. Like, oh, everything yeah. I do, I do for you. Like yeah. That was from the movie Robin Hood, which was really huge. Remember that? 91 had a lot of huge movies out, man. And oh, then uh, A lot of huge movies And out. probably the last one here, I'm just seeing, like, notable, notable. Just so, like, what I had here was uh, Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend. He actually, is going back to Susanna Hoffs, they, they did, did stuff together. They did like a covers album of like 80s and 90s yes. stuff. Yes, but do you know where they met? Oh, Austin Powers. Yes. Because <laughs> she's married to the director of Austin Powers, Jay Roach. Mm-hmm. Susanna Haas. Uh, yes. Yeah. But I had a huge crush on her in the 80s, I remember. And actually, I tried singing a song last night for, for somebody that... um, And they're like, that's just too cheesy for me. It was Eternal Flame. Oh. <laughs> but that was like... You understand, that was like... When I was in high school, that was the song at the dance. That was... I mean, that's, you guys don't even know. Like, you had these songs, like these love songs, quote unquote, that were popular during your childhood. And I just remember that song being at a dance and that song playing. It's just crazy, dude. It's just, it's mind blowing to think back. Wow, I actually had dances that played stuff like that. And another uh, big album for me was uh, Van Halen's uh, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Yes. I know it was kind of them. Yes. It was them (laughs) kind of uh, transitioning into. I mean, they already had the Sammy Hagar sound going, mm-hmm. but they had to kind of keep up with the Joneses of the grud, uh, grunge scene was getting huge. Yes. So you can kind of tell in this album it's a little darker, a little heavier. I love it. But then they still throw in a few of those pop songs like uh, Top of the World or... Uh, they were probably the only... GNR gets a lot of credit for being like one of the bands that kind of only... But I think... But you understand also that Van Halen was pre hair band day too. True. Yeah, no. I mean they kind 70s. of they kind of opened the door for hair band. Let me get me wrong. Yeah. Eddie was more technical. Come on, I mean if you if I don't know what album it was off of, but finish what you started. I mean that don't tell me it doesn't have a country oh, you feel to it. Too. I mean so for fuck to come out, that was another great album by them that they were able to kind of get through all of that you know grunge thing and still survive. The only thing that hurt them was basically. 
the implosion of Eddie and Sammy. So it had nothing to do with, like, I think the whole, you know, music scene. They were still being very successful up to that point. See, because I grew up with Balance. That was the first, because that was about the time when I first started, I started listening to that and their greatest hits album and everything. And that's how I kind of got introduced to Van Halen was through Sammy Hagar, way before David Lee Roth. Which yeah. is crazy. You, most people are yeah, the other way. But and Human Beings, I, I think, came off of Balance, didn't it? And that was like, songs. and it's a great, great song. Twister soundtrack. Yeah, it was all the Twister, but the sound. <laughs> they weren't trying to be grunge or alternative or anything. They were just like, hey, we're going to try this stuff in the studio and see what comes out. Well, and that's like with uh, Pound Cake, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing had ever really been done like that before that sound, kind of, with the, yeah. the drill. You know, the at the beginning. Like, yes. They were kind of experimenting still, even though they mm-hmm. were way past their, their prime for yeah. most bands, you know what I mean? Eddie was trying out ballads and just different stuff, different style. Right now, I didn't even mention that. It's probably the biggest song off the album. Uh-huh. I mean, for Van Halen, that's like the most it was a Pepsi. Com- it was a Pepsi commercial. They released Crystal Pepsi underneath that. They what was that? a lot of crap. Right now by Van Halen. Oh, like the Crystal yes. Pepsi, they did the... But that was... You understand. Sold out, bro. You know, they were like... <laughs> zillion albums in like, yeah oh okay. gee yeah um yeah. like with metallica actually this year the black album that's a huge uh and i'm glad you brought sold that out, up man this is amazing just want to let you know this and i'm glad you brought that up i was almost going to forget about it with that being said the the metallica uh, black album 30 years there is a tribute album coming out called blacklist okay wait till you see who is on this album man i am not kidding you so here are some of the artists that are on this album, okay? Weezer, Jason Isbell in the 400 unit, St. Vincent, Corey Taylor, Cage the Elephant, The Neptunes. Wow. Sorry, Phoebe Bridgers. Miley Cyrus does a cover of Nothing Else Matters with Elton John, Yo-Yo Ma, I'm seeing Watt. You know who Watt is? Watt is this like big producer It's done like a lot of stuff with like Post Malone, he did the post. He did the thing with Post Malone and uh, Ozzy Osbourne, and then uh, Robert Trujillo. No, but I also saw on that list that uh, Royal Blood's on there. Have you heard any of their stuff? Yes, they're like, really, really good. They're like a local age, yeah. kind of like a White Stripes two-piecer, where they're just like, where a band of two people sounds fuller than some bands like four or five people that are playing. You know, Dave Gahan from Depeche Mode is on there. My Morning Jacket. Darius Rucker, Chris Stapleton. Wow. Don't tell me that that album is not influential across the board. Yeah. To many musicians, it didn't influence my playing growing up, but like I can appreciate what it did for others. Just like uh-huh. my, not hatred of Nirvana, but just like my like indifference. It's like mm-hmm. they influenced so many bands that I like. Doesn't mean I can't I listen to can't listen. Never mind. Be like, okay, this is just really kind of catchy, but it's just not. The album I wore out in high school. Here's the thing, though, too, that you guys don't understand. That was part of the whole Bob Rock era. Bob Rock produced like a lot of albums um, for a lot of different artists that boosted like their their popularity. So for Metallica fans, it definitely shifted with them. Like there was some hate. Like oh, here they go going pop mainstream. rock. Yeah, mainstream. And now, listen, sorry, they just opened up their audience more. Is all they were. Trying and now, listen to, to the, some of the stuff that album is not. No. It's not like light pop rock. It's just, it's still Metallica. And to it, me, it's, it, it sounds it, like Metallica. It goes full circle back to the Octane Baby mm-hmm. thing. It was yeah. different. You know, they didn't play the standard yes. kind of thrash metal that they had. You know, and Justice for All, as most fans say that, that's their favorite mm-hmm. Metallica album. But it's like, 
expand and do different things. Otherwise, it's going to be a boring band after a while, unless you're ACDC. They got They kept their sound and just kept going. Yeah. Um, but Nothing Else Matters to Me is a great, great song, Wherever I May Roam, The Unforgiven, oh. Holier Than Now, Sad But True. That's and my then, Sad But True. Hands down, mm-hmm. one of my favorite riffs I've ever heard. you got to hear that Jason Isbell cover. It's like nothing like the really? original. I loved it. It was really, really good. I'll definitely check it yeah, out. Yeah, I can't wait to even hear Chris Stapleton and what he does. Yeah. But it's, it, you know. Darius Rucker? I know. What the heck's he going to do? Oh. That's what I'm curious about. Dude, honestly. that's what I'm saying. They're mixing it up. They're trying stuff different. I know there's Miley Cyrus haters out there, but that Miley Cyrus version, I love it. It's really great. It's great hearing Yo-Yo Ma doing the cello on it, Elton John doing piano and like keyboards in the background. But it's still got that same melodic feel to it like the original does. So that album's going to be coming out here in the next few weeks. It's not out yet, but they're releasing tracks every week off of it. The St. Vincent track was just released this week. Oh, and I, I love her. She, I mean, <laughs> impartial because she's a Des Moines, has made, made it out there. And uh, kept her um, own artistic thing. And A new Jackson Brown album coming out. I don't know if any of you guys listen to Jackson Brown at all. Oh, yeah. And I'm really looking forward to hearing it. And he's always been a very political guy, believe it or not. He's done a lot of things for causes and stuff out there. But now he's doing this whole new album has to do with how we're treating the ocean waters. He talks about it in a Mark Marin podcast he released about a month ago. And it's just stuff that you're not aware of that he's just trying to bring out to the forefront. He, to me, is one of the most underrated songwriters that's out there. I think a lot of people give recognition to Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and the Eagles and stuff. He was part of that whole scene. He there wouldn't have been an Eagles without there. Jackson Brown. Yeah, well, you can say that, but Ta- I, don't, I don't know if that's the truth. But well, it, Take It Easy was a huge hit. That's, not, that's the one that broke them. That's what I'm getting. It's like, yeah. they, might, they might have been big, but like that was a big one. Like Most people grow up thinking like Take It Easy is a yeah. Eagles song. All of a sudden you hear like, no, Jackson Brown wrote that and gave it to the Eagles to... Which is great. Yeah, and he, they, they obviously took it and ran with it. Somebody gets a lot of attention right now. Um, she's in the forefront of what the pop scene and the popular scene is, Billie Eilish. She has a brand new coming out, and she's definitely testing her image right now. If you've not seen anything that's out there as far as promotional things been going on with the album and stuff. Somebody that was popular before her that kind of got that recognition that a lot of people are like, whatever happened to her, is finally coming out with an album this year, and it's Lord. I think we talked about that last time. She just kind of disappeared off the... She was doing a lot of environmental stuff, too. Yeah. She went to Antarctica. She's been kind of, you know, she's trying to, to use her her fame and her to kind of get the message out there about the environment also. So this is the one album I wanted to bring up, and I'd love for you to chime in where you can. But I know the album me and JT are looking most forward to this year. One of the albums that we're looking most forward to this, this year is Sob Rock by John Mayer. Yeah. So John Mayer hasn't had anything out in a while. And this is kind of his like '80s tribute to Clapton in a way. So wow. his whole '80 Clapton's whole '80s sound. Even the cover has like the nice price sticker on it, which was what had the, was on the vinyl records and the CD albums. But the, even the album cover itself looks like an '80s album. Oh wow! Yeah. And the video that's out right now has an '80s feel to it. Kind of. It, rip, it rips off the synths from like Toto's Africa, so yeah. it kind of has that same. And then also, uh, they, it's got some stuff from like a Sweet Child of Mine ripped off into it. And oh, like I gotta check this out. Oh yeah, it's, I like John. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got a great sense of humor, but he is, like John and me have said, the mo- one of the most underrated guitarists out there. Under and over at the same time. I yeah. mean, because he writes pop songs, people are like, oh, it's just trash. Like, and then like, he, but no, but I'm just saying. But <laughs> yeah. then you would take him, take them to like a concert where he's like playing with Dead and Company, 
Or like, have you, or have you ever heard like his John Mayer trio where he plays with Steve Jordan and Pino Palladino? That's my favorite lineup. But I'm just saying, like, it's, it's it's just like face melting guitar, like Gary Clark Jr. Yes. Where you're just like, if you take somebody who says like, oh, he writes trash pop songs, you're like, I just want him to play like you write his one. It's like you can't make these people happy. No, it's like he can do everything. He can do everything. He can do everything. That's what it is. It's, he he's you just can't put him in this box. He's a magician who will show you. Two good tricks, but won't show you his best one. Yes. But then we see his best one. It's like I just want to see your two tricks. It's like yeah. you can't make him happy. You can't yeah. make you know, like to where me and him can go see him and like we know we're gonna get everything across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I love about him. But he is another artist where his image gets the best of him because he's considered quote unquote a ladies' man. And yeah, yeah. I always joke with everybody that if he ever brings on autobiography, I'm gonna buy that yeah. just to hear you know the stories yeah, yeah, of yeah. like because I mean he's had quite the lineup. But he's he's changed. He's just mellowed out like like he he literally had to go to therapy for like egomania. Like he yeah. he kind of like had to get help because like he was well, he was being on like Twitter and like, you know, and all that quite yeah. a bit and like probably drinking things like that. But now he's just doing his thing. Now he, he's a couple years older than me. He's in between John Johnny's age and my age. So he's like 43 or 44 now. So it's kind of like you get to that age you just have to kind of like for me and I I was introduced with your Body is a Wonderland and oh, yeah. style songs with John Mayer. But ever since he's grown and I've seen him play, uh, actually one of the, it was a Crossroads. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, they, I've seen the video. Did he do like Ain't No Sunshine? Is that the one you saw? Yeah. Ain't No Sunshine? Like he has what like... Was he with though? I'm trying to the tri- I think he had the trio on that one. He had like Steve Jordan playing bass and... It was, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy can shred guitar. And then I just dug into more and more and I'm like, oh, yeah, he's fantastic. It's not like just these pop songs you're going to add to you know, he trained at Berkeley, which, you know, gets shit, too. Like, it's like, oh, he's a trained... I mean, he didn't put his, like, you know, his he didn't put the, the work in or whatever. Like, no, he just learned more technical stuff through Berkeley. And then he went and did, a, you know, like, he's touring with, like he just said, the dead. There ain't no better school of, like, jamming and, like, experimental rock than the dead. Because I think if you go to Berkeley, I mean, not saying like they're all like, but like you get real clinical, like you play a, mm-hmm. you, you play a note that doesn't belong in the song, you're getting dirty looks. Like, True. I'm on a stage or I'm hitting a bad note and all of a sudden I'm trying to slide to the next one. It's like, people aren't judging it. No. And most, you're not going to hear if somebody hits a sour note most of the time. If, if they know what they're doing up there, they're just going to flub it and you're, it's just going to go on and flow. Like, yeah. yeah. So you're not going to freak out over a missed note. Another album I wanted to bring up to us was you know who this band is, and I think you've heard this band before. The person that's the front man from this band used to be in the group FUN, Fun, and then he went and created his own thing called Bleachers. Oh, he, was, he wasn't the... From, he was the guitarist. Uh, Jack Antonoff was like the guitarist in Fun, but it was like no, Andrew, was Andrew Roos or whatever was, was the... the, front, the, was the yeah. I'm saying he was the front man for Bleachers. Mm-hmm. So he went on and did his own thing with the Bleachers, but... I'm really excited to hear the Bleachers album because what he just said, Jack went on to create albums for like the biggest pop star in the last 10 years that nobody realizes that, and that is Taylor Swift. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. So the reason why, he was part of the whole reason why Taylor Swift kind of, not the reason why, yeah, he yeah. was the help in the whole transition from Taylor from country to pop. So if you look and see at all the production work in these last few albums, mm-hmm. he would kind of helped her along with that, the whole sound. You know, that's why I haven't heard anything from Fun, is because he went on, did this, this stuff with her, and then did the Bleachers thing inside. So now he's got an album coming out with the Bleachers called Take the Sadness Out of Saturday Night. 
And the reason I bring that up is because there's a song on there called Chinatown that has Bruce Springsteen on it. And it's really good. I was, like, I've had listened to it every, like, two or three times. That album's coming out here this summer also. I like that he can get, like, you know, something like Bruce Springsteen with him on this album. And I kind of want to hear what else he's got to offer. Um, but that will be out this summer. The album's called Take the Sadness Out of Saturday Night by the Bleachers. Were you ever a, a Churches fan? Yeah, I've seen them twice. They're... They do some pretty cool stuff. So, yeah. and they got a new album coming out this summer, also. Ah, uh, what's the one? Uh, Screen violence. Yeah, but the new single. Like, I really kind of dig the new single. So, was it? He said, she he, said. He said, she said. Yeah. But there's a track on there with Robert Smith from The Cure called "How uh, Not to Drown," which I could see because I mean they're they're clearly influenced by The Cure. It's like real yeah. kind of like synthy and. One thing I wanted to go down that I noticed in the brand new releases that are coming out. And I've talked to people about this. Post-mortem after an artist dies. Should they release the stuff that they never want to release? Or should they be able to release everything that they had in the catalog and um, out there for the audience to release? There's a mixed thing. Some fans think, no, they never wanted it out, so you should never hear the light of day. And there's fans that are like, I want to hear it because it might be something really good. Example is is that Prince has got an album coming out called Welcome to America. It was an album that he was supposed to release about 10 years ago or so. And it never got released because he didn't want it released. And the fans are really going to enjoy it. So now the people that are part of the estate are going to release this album. I had some fans say, oh, I wish they would just leave his stuff alone. To me, I am more interested in hearing everything during the Purple Rain era that he had put away. Yeah. Because between like Purple Rain and like even like... Um, signs of the time and even like the Batman soundtrack he was like at his peak at that moment and he's got a lot of stuff in the catalog that might eventually see the light of day so what are your thoughts what are your thoughts on like stuff them releasing stuff with Chris Grinnell now he's passed away they've been doing that I think it's kind of foolish to not think that we're all selfish at the end of the day with Mm -hmm. our artists like we want everything we can get from them Mm -hmm. I mean it's just reality that's why they slow drip feed it to you oh yeah otherwise if I gave you everything at once you know what I mean can they Let's be honest, you know, they're going to make money off this. This is another thing. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, it's a reality, but I do think... There's a part of this when I want to hear it, right? Why not? Just put it... I mean, mm-hmm. now, if it was in his will, like he said, absolutely not. I want nothing to see the light of day, then I'd say, no, that's mm-hmm. what he wants. But, yeah. yeah it's I like, mean, if it's kind of a heat, you know, like a... They're gone and they're I not here. I don't want it released. Yeah. Versus, like, it's in written. You know, yeah. he's like, I definitely don't want this released. Yeah. I could see how both sides... I feel like you're kind of on the fence, John. What do you think? Yeah, I think he probably got a thing like Prince, like said, he didn't want to release it and have it in writing, but mm-hmm. then you get the same thing like Soundgarden where the other three members are remaining. Like, we need to want to put out these demos, release it to our fans as a material. Yeah. But it's like, it's it's just one of those things, yeah, like where and I, if and the I, artist wishes it, mm-hmm. but some artists are really good about releasing whatever just because like, I just want it all out. It's like, but some of them, like, if I didn't release it, there's probably a good reason I didn't release it. Yes. It's like, yes. but then again, like, I'm like my own worst critic with my playing. It's like, I get up mm-hmm. there, it's like, I think I sound like crap. It's like, oh, you sounded good. It's like, I think people have a hard time getting... Yeah, the get, stuff get, could get, be really get, great and they didn't think it was great. Yeah, it's like, no, like, you know how many bad song, bad songs I'm making the air quotes, like, Noel Gallagher's written over the years, like, yeah. he doesn't want to throw out. And, like, Oasis fans would kill to hear them. Yes. Yeah. It was like, oh my God, like... This song is like 20 times better than Champagne Supernova or like Acquiesce. It's like, why didn't you put this out? And he's like, it's still shit. It's like, yeah. I think like if an artist can get their ego out of the way, 
then do it. Then do it. But it's it's depending on who you're talking to. It's it's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing here before we wind up is that there is a documentary that is out there now that I wanted to mention to John. There's an episode with it. Is it's called Hail Brit Pop? Is the episode? There's a documentary out right now called This Is Pop that came out um, like a month or so ago, and it deals with all the pop music. Okay, but it deals with Brit Pop. Watching the documentary, even like Noel's like bitching about that title. He's like, I'm not part of Brit Pop. You know, like, well, Wonderwall was a pop song. Hey, you can't take that away, Noel. You know, but it talks about how you know you would really enjoy this. And I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it about yet, but if you guys get a chance, it's on Netflix. It's called Britpop, and um, the the episode that's on there. But it also goes through like boys to men and their whole era. It goes through all these different pop eras, and pop music is a big in, big influence on music. And as much as some people want to like, oh, I'm above and beyond that. As you get in your older years, you know that pop music, no matter how big or small it was, I was part of the '80s pop era, you know, with Michael Jackson and all the mid '80s pop and. So, with that being said, I, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm really enjoy doing these. Yeah. You guys, I, I really oh, do. Yeah. I love that. I, I don't know about you, Mr. I feel like John Turner brought the A-game today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, holy cow. Like, I love hearing you talk, man. Yeah, I was like, I was, I was really getting it. Sit back. Like, like, you go. You get down with your bad self. This yeah. is the no, John that, Turner I want. I was telling him before you got here, like, he's like, oh, it's like a shine right down nose. Because, like. Then we're all driving home, or he's going upstairs, sitting down on the couch, like, "Oh, we should have talked about this. We yeah. should have talked about that." Yeah. And it's like we forgot the most important single that came out in 1991. Though. What was that? Good Vibrations, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end the podcast here, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. I wonder what happened. I wonder whatever happened to him. No. Yeah, but, you know, big, it's, it's, after he did those Calvin Klein ads, he must have just fell off the face of the earth, right? <laughs> yeah, no one likes him. Yeah. Now, one of the hugest freaking, you know, movie stars that's out there. The hugest families, for that matter. I was in Hy-Vee the other day, yeah. and I saw the Wahlberg products in there, and I'm like, what the? It's like, it's like, it's like Donnie's coming after you. Is it Donnie or Mark? I, I get all confused. They all look alike. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> just say Wahlberg. You know. Well, Good Vibrations was good like Sunkissed, so that's what I love about <laughs> Not gonna let the puns get away there. No, so, yeah. no, no. But that that you understand that 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 was that was pretty damn big hit there in the '91. That was oh my Still, god. Still, I mean, if you throw that on at any, party, it's fun. It's a guaranteed people like oh they all know it. It's like you said, very fun. Yeah, they actually made fun of it during one of his movies. Uh, end of it in the credits. It was the one where he was in the hair band, but they played the song at the end like during the over like the PA. Because they were practicing, like acting like they were in a live show, and somebody threw that on, and he was just like, there was a smug look, like, are you fuckers? You <laughs> yeah, know, like, yeah. So no, you're, you're, he's never gonna escape Marky Mark. No. He never will. No, yeah. I mean, we could always touch on more in a future time. Because like, we'd be here all day talking. I mean, there's just so many big singles, not even albums released, but just like yeah. singles. Yes. From '91, I mean, something to talk about, Bonnie Raitt. Uh, oh my gosh, I love. I'm just pulling up like this is the wormhole we can go down all day long. I'll I mean, tell you, this is when uh, Rush too with the album. Roll the Bones. Yeah. It was kind of there into that 90s sound of, uh, mm-hmm. was it uh, Presto? Like uh, another one, you gave it to me. Counter, is it Counterparts? Counterparts, yes. Wow. Oh my gosh. Love that song, Animate. Mm-hmm. It's one of my yeah. favorite Rush songs. Not to take away from you guys by any means, but in a future podcast um, with my friends Jack Miller and Jeremy McCree, our whole thing is going to be about talking about Canadian bands. 
Oh, <laughs> I'm a professional on that. Yeah, triumphant. Yeah. It just seems so, like I like the, yeah, 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 you got the hip, but that's about it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> um, no, I love these moments. I love, you know, talking with this, and you guys bring out of me this whole music thing. Yeah, what's up? And I have one other note. Okay. Freddie Mercury died that year. Holy shit. Big, big yeah. loss. In that, was, that was a gigantic the loss. The last album came out. Yeah, that, that was one of the first, like, deaths that, like, impacted since, I think... Before that would have been like John Lennon, mm-hmm. yeah, which yeah, was an eighty-one, was it? That, that was eighty. Eighty, okay. yeah. Okay. Because then, if you figure, like he died in like, I think it was like summer or fall of ninety-one, and then a few months later, I mean, this is obviously nineteen ninety-two, so we can't talk about this till next year. It would yeah. have been uh, Wayne's World, resur- the resurgence of that with Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, that was like right almost after. Like, I'm sure they were filming at the time that happened, and they put that in the film, so it kind of becomes like a eulogy to yeah. like. Because that broke Queen to so many newer people who weren't yeah. necessarily, necessarily yeah. kids of the 80s. And that's something else I want to bring. Let's bring that up in our next podcast is resurgent bands of the 90s. You have to understand that Queen's Greatest Hits 1 and 2 for the 90s was one of the biggest selling Greatest Hits albums alongside with Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, which both those bands got resurgence in the 90s and came back yeah. and had a big audience and come back. Still to this day, the first Eagles Greatest Hits is one of the best-selling albums yep. of all time. And wait, you know what the other ones are? The greatest hit albums, the two other ones were Billy Joel Greatest Hits, one and two, Elton and Elton John, John Greatest Hits. Mm-hmm. So that's something we can bring up in the next podcast is resurgence. And like, um, obviously, Billy Joel had a really good, um, t- good, really good year in the early 90s, but Elton John went on to do like Lion King, and yeah. you know, and like be huge with that, and then um, okay. Princess Diana passed away shortly after that, and um, he had the remake of Candle in the Wind. So this is stuff we can bring up in the next podcast, and uh, I want to thank uh, JT Money. I want to thank Mr. Reese Argo for opening up his home again to us. Thank you. And I want to thank uh, our mascot here, yes, yeah, CC. <laughs> Who uh, you'll hear, and uh, we'll put a picture of her up, I'm sure. For the, uh, maybe that'll be the logo yeah. for the next uh, next uh, podcast. Yeah. So uh, get her get her hot takes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you all for listening, and uh, hope you enjoy your summer. Take care of yourself out there. Hi, this is Johnny. I'm your host, and you are listening to Music Seeds. The music that made us.